You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello, and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Mark Staples, an editor with McKinsey Publishing. Today, we're going to be talking about global private markets. And here to tell us more are two members of McKinsey's Global Private Equity and Principal Investors Practice. Ali Jetty is a senior partner in the New York office. Matt Portner is an associate partner in the Toronto office, and they are two of the authors of McKinsey's Global Private Markets Review, published earlier this year. Hello, guys. Hello, this is Ali. Hi, this is Matt. So let's start. What do we mean by private markets? It's not a terribly familiar term to some people, I'm sure. Ali, what do you mean by the term? Sure. You know, one of the indicators of how dramatically the industry is changing is that we no longer have a vocabulary to talk about this industry. So if you just pause and reflect for a minute, private equity is an obsolete term because private equity today includes things that are neither private nor equity. If you think about the term limited partner, some of the folks in that segment are neither limited nor partners. They're often becoming direct competitors and certainly not limited in the rights that they're seeking. And by the way, even as you stretch beyond to say fixed income, it's either fixed at zero or it's not income. So a lot of the words that we've traditionally used have started to fail us. And as they do so, we've coined this term and used this term, which others use as well, called private markets, to refer to all things illiquid, where there isn't a mark to market on a very regular, frequent basis. So it includes for us everything like private equity, but also illiquid of other forms, such as credit, real estate, and parts of infrastructure. You called your report a routinely exceptional year. Um, Matt, could you tell us a little bit more about, uh, about what that title means? In any other year, this would look pretty remarkable in terms of fundraising and assets under management. That's actually been a continuation of a cycle of expansion that began back in the 2008. So this was yet another year of uh, great fundraising, great results and participation from LPs. The qualifier on, on that continued strong growth is with growth comes challenges. And in terms of increased competition, rising multiples, there are some challenges emerging in the industry. So Matt, you, uh, you mentioned that the industry has been in a long cycle of growth. It's managing a great deal of capital. Can you say just how much capital is privately managed? It's about $4.7 trillion by the end of 2016, and that's in assets under management. That's driven by a lot of factors. Obviously, there's incredible LP demand and desire based on part on the $4.3 trillion liability gap that we currently see in the U.S., uh, but also the belief of LPs in the asset class. So that money has continued to flow in. And looking forward, uh, if investors were just to hold the allocations they have now, so thinking about it as organic growth, another $700 billion or so would flow in over the next three to four years. And if they were to actually hit some of their long-term allocation targets in private markets, that number could be substantially more. So fundraising is very healthy right now. Many of the states in the U.S. in particular are struggling to meet the liabilities that they have on their books. Uh, and that gap has continued to increase over time to the extent that it's now $4.3 trillion with no signs of abating. And LPs need to put their money to work and they need to allocate capital. Part of the, the hope is that gap will be closed by the return from private markets asset classes. The other factor to consider there is based on a lot of research that our McKinsey Global Institute has done, we foresee sort of structurally uh, some challenges for the public markets going forward. So that outlook for the public markets uh, will also drive more capital into private markets. 
so there's a lot of discussion of the cyclical uh, high in fundraising that we're going through, and we all know that fundraising is cyclical in our industry. But let's not forget the structural forces that are driving some of the increase in fundraising that we've seen in recent times. Fundamentally, there are a couple of things going on, the first of which is that the financial crisis opened up a substantial gap between the assets and the liabilities of public pension funds. That gap has not closed. In fact, it's even worsened since the 2008 timeframe. And so today, that gap stands at $4.3 trillion. If you are a chief investment officer of a public pension fund sitting there and looking at that kind of an underfunded status, and by the way, on average, pension funds have a funded status of 66 67%. So you look at that, what are your choices for closing that gap? You might turn to the public markets, such as equities and fixed income. Those markets have, have in recent times not delivered anywhere close to the actuarial assumptions that most pension funds have. And if you look at the recent McKinsey Global Institute data, it will show that nor are they likely to. In fact, the prognosis that the MGI has come up with for the next 20 years for equities and fixed income is considerably worse than the actual performance we saw in the last 30 years. That then forces you to say, where will I get the return to close this gap? And what we are suggesting is that private markets investing is likely to be the place to which they will turn. We are not making a forecast on returns, but what we are saying is that when we look at the most reputable consultants to the industry, what they are projecting and what they are telling their clients is that private markets will considerably outperform public markets in the foreseeable future. Okay, so put it all together and fundraising has been fairly spectacular, at least through 2016. What about uh, this year? The first half is in the books now. What does 2017 look like so far in terms of fundraising? Well, if you look at the first part of 2017, even just at, at Q1, uh, we're already on track for about a 15% year-over-year bump in fundraising. So while 2016 was certainly high, it was really matching the highs of previous years, and we're now seeing 2017 on track for a record year, driven by, of course, some well-publicized mega funds raising some of the largest funds ever. The industry is raising tremendous amounts of capital. How about the investment side? What's it doing with the capital that it's investing? What do uh, deal volumes look like so far this year? This is an interesting dynamic. So I think it's been fairly well reported and, and certainly well discussed that the increasing number of firms and the increase in competition for deals are making attractive deals harder to come by and harder to find. And in the report, we discuss a metric to look at that, that only about 25% of public companies in the Russell 3000 index were actually valued below the median buyout multiple at the end of 2016. And that's dramatically down from 68% in 2008, all of which is to say attractive deals are harder to find. What you saw at the end of 2016 was a commensurate drop in deal activity, uh, whether measured by dollars or count of deals. There was quite a dramatic drop, and that was the first time in seven years that we've seen activity fall. But we certainly shouldn't overreact to that too much. It seems to be bouncing back this year so far. Already private equity deals in the U.S. are up 43% from this time last year. And certainly part of that is driven by investors, LPs specifically, getting impatient with the amount of dry powder out there and putting some pressure on their GPs to invest that capital. And so they're plunging in and are willing to pay the multiples, even though they're unattractive by historical standards. Is that right? 
Mark, I think there's a broader structural change again here that we should acknowledge, which is that the very definition of performance is changing. And, and just to quote uh, or to cite another obsolete word, alternatives is an obsolete word now, right? Because the amount of capital that needs to flow to meet that large asset liability gap we're talking about is a substantial portion of investors' portfolios. And so this is no longer the alternative allocation that sits in the corner of a portfolio. This is the mainstay. As it becomes the mainstay, the performance expectation or the very definition of what constitutes good performance is changing. It used to be that everyone promised a 20% return and some of the very best GPs actually delivered an even higher result than that. What LPs are increasingly asking for is not necessarily 20%, but rather actuarial progress against their liabilities. What they are asking for is consistency at scale. So what they're saying is, I don't want you to knock the ball out of the park. I want you to make a credible promise that is better than my other options for investing and then actually deliver against that number. What that allows GPs to do is to be more transparent about the return they expect to achieve and to be able to even do deals at slightly higher multiples and yet make that lower but promised return, which is better than what the investor could have gotten in the public markets or in fixed income or other arenas. As LPs and GPs find this common ground and expectations emerge, does that mean that the uh, stocks of dry powder, which uh, many observers have noted are quite high, I think you quoted a figure in your report of $1.6 trillion, uh, does that mean these stocks of dry powder uh, can we expect them to go down? Well, it's a bit of a math equation, right? There's obviously been a fair bit of hand-wringing over the increasing amount of dry powder over the last few years. I think one thing we touched on in the report was if you actually look at the increase in dry powder relative to the increase in deal activity over the last number of years, you've seen the deal activity has largely kept pace, meaning that if you view dry powder more as sort of inventory on hand, it actually has, the industry's managed it reasonably well. Now, the drop in deal activity and commensurate rise in dry powder at the end of last year would have raised some alarm bells and certainly looked a bit more concerning given the bounce back in activity so far this year, due in no small part to the pressure to put that capital to work by LPs. Uh, I think it's, it's less of a concern going forward. All in all, sounds like a picture of an industry uh, in the pink of health. Uh, are, are there any short-term challenges that you guys see um, that the industry uh, should be aware of, or are we headed for uh, another routinely exceptional year in 2017 and maybe 2018? This will be another routinely exceptional year for sure, but I think there are absolutely challenges that make the industry pretty different going forward. Uh, the first of which uh, is a very obvious one, which is as you start to move into the mainstay of the portfolio, as I call it, yes, people allocate a lot of capital in that component, so most of the sophisticated CIOs we speak to today would say equities within which public and private as opposed to uh, alternatives. The good news is in equities, there is a lot of capital, and that's what's driving some of the AUM growth that we were just talking about. The bad news is no one pays 2 and 20 for that part of the portfolio. In fact, you know, we often joke that 2 and 20 has gone from being a fee structure to being a nursery rhyme. And so fee pressure is absolutely going to be an important component of what drives behavior and LPGP discussions in the near term. I think another challenge I would point to is the fact that LPs are going direct. So I alluded earlier to LPs not being limited nor partners. A number of LPs are competing directly for deals and becoming competitors rather than partners. And on the deals in which they are invested through GPs, 
uh, in wanting more and more governance oversight and transparency rights than they ever had before. So the LPGP relationship itself is getting redefined in pretty interesting and different ways. In addition to what Ali just talked about in terms of the emergence of, of some LPs as direct competitors, there's actually a, uh, a bit of a, maybe I'll say a bifurcation in that others are kind of doubling down on more of an external manager strategy. And what I mean by that is there's a rise of this notion of strategic partnerships, which is LPs actually having stronger but fewer relationships with their GPs. So committing more capital to fewer GPs and actually having a closer, more strategic relationship that includes potentially fee reductions, but also more research sharing, opportunities for training, actually leveraging those relationships to get more out of them in exchange for increased allocations, recycling capital back into funds, and actually being the anchor tenant for new funds that GPs have. LPs are placing bigger bets with fewer firms, it sounds like. And one might expect that to be driving consolidation in the industry. In other words, we would expect to see you know, a few firms at the top getting bigger and uh, other firms uh, sort of falling down the league table. Is that, in fact, the trend that you're seeing? Interestingly, that's not what we're seeing, unlike other industries and what you might expect. It's an interesting dynamic. What you do see is that the largest funds are capturing a larger share of new capital to the extent that one in every $4 raised in private markets in 2016 went to a mega fund. So LPs are consolidating their holdings into fewer large funds. But when we look at firms instead of funds, there's actually very minimal consolidation. Uh, and the portion of annual fundraising flowing to the top five and top 10 firms has actually decreased slightly over time. And so net, what we're seeing is consolidation of LP's capital to a smaller number of larger funds, but not necessarily fewer firms raising them. So a lot of capital flowing into the industry, going to the larger firms in proportion to the overall flow. But there are some big differences uh, that you guys spotted amongst the, uh, the, the world's major regions. For example, in private equity fundraising in 2016, you reported that uh, European firms raised uh, or grew at 42 percent, U.S. at uh, 6 percent, but Asia fell 21 percent. And you, one of the CEOs that you interviewed for this research looked at this and said that if you inferred people's opinions from their current asset allocations, you would think that Europe was fastest growing, Asia was underperforming, and the U.S. was stable, and you'd be wrong on all three counts. Now, that struck me as interesting. What do you guys think, and are we still seeing these trends playing out? Mark, the point that the CEO we interviewed was making, which I think is a fundamental one, is that LPs' investment allocations often lag the economic fundamentals on the ground. And one of the reasons they lag those fundamentals is that we don't have a good metric for risk in our industry. And so, for example, LPs have a view that some of the higher growth markets in Asia and elsewhere are higher risk markets. And therefore, and frankly, more unknown markets, part of what we perceive as risk is actually just a lack of knowledge about those markets. And so what that CEO was saying was that while there are the greatest investment opportunities in Asia, by greatest I mean not the best, but the largest, LPs don't yet have the familiarity with those markets to be able to increase their allocations with the level of conviction that those markets today justify. And so there is a real lag between the level of insight that LPs have and the level of conviction they can develop versus the asset allocation. 
As a consequence, they continue to plow more and more capital into markets where the prognosis is actually not as attractive as it has been in the past. What do you think needs to happen in order for them to develop the level of conviction necessary? I think part of what will need to happen is that those markets will just need to continue to mature. The problem with many of those markets is that we have seen some good, we have seen many good deals. We have seen a few good funds. We have yet to get conviction that there are some very good firms. And the problem is not that there aren't good firms. The problem is what we call good in the U.S. is a track record of 10, 15, 20 years, multiple funds, et cetera, so that LPs, because that's how LPs' algorithms have been built. The reality is there aren't 20-year-old firms in many of these markets. Private equity itself in most of these markets is 20 years old. Remember, in the U.S. even, it's only about 30 years old. So it's, the, it's a function of a maturing industry. It's a function of a rapidly growing and, frankly, in many markets, nascent industry. But what that means is that investors who are willing to sift through specific opportunities, who are willing to take the time and invest the resources in understanding the market dynamics of individual places, will actually have materially different allocations from the conventional wisdom and will actually get outperformance as a result of that. And you are seeing some indicators that, you know, that sentiment is starting to shift. You know, some of the mega funds have recently started fundraising for very large funds uh, that are Asia-focused. And even if you look as of about June this year, Asia-focused private equity funds have raised about 32 to $33 billion so far, which is about 80% of all that was raised last year. So there are some indicators that, you know, the sentiment is starting to shift. People are getting more comfortable allocating capital to the region. Both of you guys work with uh, both uh, private investors and um, private uh, asset managers, in other words, with uh, limited partners and general partners. What's the sentiment like inside their walls? Are are they seeing the same things that you're seeing? Uh, What's their perspective? I think that's right. On on the GP side, certainly seeing success with regards to fundraising, and many of our clients are performing very well in in a competitive environment. That being said, we are hearing some expressions of, uh, you know, frustration with where multiples and valuations are at right now. And some of our clients are being a little bit more judicious and starting to pull out of uh, select processes earlier than they might have before, given, you know, given where the multiples are at. Um, but we're also seeing an increasing focus on portfolio value creation and not just the sort of standard cost-cutting levers that GPs may have been pulling in the past, but an increased focus on digital and advanced analytics and talent to think about how to drive value in the portfolio. And on the LP side, I would say very similar to what we discussed earlier, which is um, either what capabilities do I need to start considering going direct? And on the flip side, how can I actually develop more strategic relationships with my GPs to get more out of the relationships? I think that's broadly consistent with what I would say as well. I think the first uh, opportunity as well as challenge that firms are facing and focusing on is how to scale the platform, not for firm growth reasons, but because the amount of capital that LPs need to deploy and want to deploy is just greater than you can do in private equity alone, because private equity is comprised of so many bespoke transactions that are hard to do quickly. They are hard to do in a uh, cookie cutter kind of a way. And so there's a natural limit to scale in private equity specifically, which is why firms are turning more to areas like credit, like real estate and like infrastructure, where they can maintain consistency while also deploying more capital that responds to the LP need to earn yield on a higher capital base. I think the second area of priority and importance that clients discuss extensively with us 
is how to build the spine of the firm, the talent spine, the infrastructural spine of compliance, investor relations, finance, uh, uh, regulatory compliance, etc., because it has become so important in order to support large mandates and to support large number of LPs that you have a well-oiled machine that can serve clients uh, in, in a high standard, high quality kind of way as, as the industry continues to, to mature and develop. And then the third area which I would mention, which was implicit in the discussion we had around high multiples, is the value creation algorithm itself at the asset level. I think the next decade or so will see material innovation in how portfolio companies and the assets that are owned by some of these GPs are improved during the period of ownership. Value is created in them over the period of ownership because that is ultimately the antidote to paying a high price and yet being able to get a high return. Thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'd like to thank both of you for your time. Ali, Matt, much appreciated. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Mark. To learn more about McKinsey's work with private capital managers and investors and to get a copy of the report, A Routinely Exceptional Year, please visit mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.